normally am. And I wasn't this morning. And uh, when Matthew and I met, I was all over the place. And I know people have different views about the omniscience of God, especially different than I do. I want you to know I believe our king finds out anything he wants to know. Nothing in all the creation is hidden from his sight. But I think there are circumstances that he puts us in to see what we'll do. I think there are times in which a message might be delayed because he wants to see who will show up here this morning. Uh, he directs our footsteps. Some kick against those goads and some yield to them. Eventually, our king is a master of putting us where we need to be. I got the message during worship this morning. and uh, So if you'll turn with me to Mark 10, I want to talk to you about this and then uh, we'll see what happens. Maybe we'll worship some before we, we eat. Uh, Darren, I don't know what we'll, what we'll call this, but uh, by the end of it, I'll have a title for you. How about that? In Mark 10, pick up with me in verse 17. By the way, I am just thrilled to death to be back here. I love this church. And when I walked in this morning, it was spotless, clean. Uh, probably because I wasn't here this week to mess it up. But I asked Matthew, I said, who cleaned the church? Because almost everybody who would normally clean the church is out of town and in other places. And there were too many people to name, and not people who normally clean the church. Since I am so proud that at a moment's notice, volunteers show up to do things that nobody would know about or notice. And I just want you to know the first thing I noticed when I walked into this church today is it was spotless and it smelled beautiful. The difference between being a member of a country club and being a member of a living organism that is the body of Christ is you actually care what is happening when you're not there. You care about your brother and sister. It's not something that you just attend. You care what happens. You've never walked into a country club and cared whether or not the tables were set correctly, you know, unless it affected you personally. When you walk into church, though, you really ought to care. I looked out today and saw another brother carrying cases of water. Seems like he does every Sunday. You know, more water than he could possibly drink. It must be that he cares whether or not you have water here. Uh, I appreciate that our church is growing into a family. I really do. Some of you are incredibly selfish and need to grow. Others are incredibly selfless. But the good thing is, as you rub shoulders with each other, Christ is formed in all of us. There's not a negative attribute in any one of you that is probably not found in greater quantity in me. But the good news is, all of us have something that has entered into us that is changing the way that we are. And that's Jesus. He is changing the way that we are. So that where there used to be no hope, now there is hope. There's hope when you look in the mirror if you don't like what you see. There's hope if you look to your left and your right and you're not pleased with what you see. We're a people that are filled with hope because we are ever changing. This means the husband that is just a headache to you can change. It means the spouse the neighbor, there's hope, there's hope, there's a catalyst in our earth that is changing. In Mark 10, starting in verse 17, by the way, if somebody else brought you water every week, every week, the same water that you pay $1.25 for at the stop and go, you might could find it insulting if you found 10 or 15 bottles after every service, service half full mm -hmm. sitting in here. Without 10 or $15 in that change jar that uh, is to feed orphans. But if you saw that, rather than take advantage of grace, you could look at that and say, wow, that makes me want to be a better Christian. Where could I go serve people in a way that they don't understand or see? If you were picking up chairs that somebody had paid for and put down, you could be discouraged when you saw gum under those chairs. Or you could be excited that it must have come from a guest who didn't know Jesus yet. And God's bringing the lost into contact with us so that they can be born again. Right? Amen. So it's everything we see needs to be divided by the word. Rightly divided by the word. Silver from dross. Mark 10, starting in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher. If you will keep your hand here, we're going to be in Mark 10 for a while. I need to read you something out of John. It'll be the second chapter of John. And I have to find it, which might take me a moment in this new Bible. But it'll be John 2, starting in 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing. Now that's three. Sorry, I meant two. Twenty-two. <laughs> two twenty-three. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. <laughs> Jesus was sinless. And the sinless man in perfect communion with God, still when he looked at humanity, saw something. And it sounds like he didn't expect a great deal. The gospel presents a strange kind of dualistic view. On the one hand, we are called sons of God because we are led by God. On the other, it is said that there is nothing good that dwells in man, at least in natural man. I want to ask you something as we get to Mark 10. Why did this rich young ruler call Jesus good? And listen to the fact that Jesus does not accept it. He says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees. This is back in 1017 of Mark. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, he answered. Did Jesus not accept it because Jesus was not good? We know that he was. <clears throat> I began thinking during the service about how easy it is to get offended. And there is such a problem with offense in the church, and here's one reason why. Let's suppose that uh, Fred has deeply offended me. What do I do when Fred finally is brought to a place of conviction and he comes to me and he says, Brother, I'm sorry that I offended you. What happens 90% of the times? What? What are you talking about, Fred? I didn't even notice. Right, I'm sure you didn't. But see, as good Christians, we're not supposed to be offended, right? We've been taught that we're not supposed to be offended. We neither offend nor do we get offended because we're dead to self. And to admit that you're offended with something means you're not quite dead enough to self, doesn't it? So when somebody musters up the courage to come try to get it right, what do we usually do? Oh, no, I don't even know what you're talking about. No, it's all forgiven. Which is true and it's not. You haven't come to a place where you said, yes, it really did hurt. It shouldn't have. I should be better than that. And you probably shouldn't have said it, but there is no chance for reconciliation. What if we took the view that Jesus did? What if when Michelle looked at me, might have to pick another example, huh? She's my sister. She's known me a long time. I one time did an ugly thing in a bathtub when I was just a little boy and she was bathing me. So she's seen me at my very worst times. But what if when Michelle looked at me, she said, there's nothing good in men except God. Then when Eric did something that was not quite to Michelle's liking, what would happen? Would that be a surprise? No, it would set the level of expectation at, you know, we're all pretty flawed people. But when Eric did something that was anointed of God, when he did something that was empowered by God, would that be a surprise? Yeah, that would be a good thing. See, if our expectation is that everybody but us acts like God, you're going to be offended and disappointed all of the time. And when we look at the Word and we know that it's sharper than any double-edged sword, we know that it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. And what do we do with it? We say, this means Casey needs to act like this. I'm rightly divided. I've read in the Word. This is right. That is wrong. But what if I said, you know, there's not a lot good that dwells in Casey outside of Jesus. And so if I saw something in Casey that wasn't right, I'd go, well, praise God, Jesus is there. He will eventually draw that out. Rather than being destroyed, upset, angry, if Casey didn't do exactly what I thought he ought to do. Hmm. Let me ask you something. We'll take a quick scientific survey here, right? Your deepest hurt in life. I mean, something that wounded you and left a mark, right? Mom didn't love you, whatever it was. <laughs> My mother loves me. 
Was it from a stranger or from a friend? See, the Proverbs tell us that a friend wounds. A friend can wound. Think about this. When somebody has offended you, what does that tell you? It tells you, I have a great love, hope, affection for them, and I've just been greatly disappointed. Guy in the parking lot tells you that you're a son of a perverse woman. Saul said that to Jonathan. He married her. I mean, come on, man. Saul said that to Jonathan about a woman that Saul was married to. He said, you're the son of a perverse woman. Well, is that Jonathan's fault? Anyway, when somebody in the parking lot calls you a son of a perverse woman, that doesn't really bother you a lot, right? Because you don't have any general expectation. He's just a guy that's walking by. If I say it to you, it might hurt you. So when somebody's offended with you, what is that really telling you? They love you and have high hopes for you. And in some way you let them down. So I'm going to encourage us to do two things. One is, when we look at our brothers, realize there's nothing good that dwells in us outside of Jesus. Maybe we're expecting too much of each other. The Bible tells us to aim for perfection. It doesn't say force that aim upon your brother. Right? Right? We're just supposed to spur one another on towards good deeds. That much is true. How do you best spur someone on? You lead by example. So when you look at your brother, I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and acknowledge they're pretty messed up, just like you. And when they do something good, it is God. And when they don't, it's just them. You know, it's just them. This will lower the rate at which you can constantly be offended with those that are around you. Then secondly, if you are the person that seems to be offending everyone. Rejoice in your heart. Not because you offended everybody, but because somebody has to love you and have hopes for you and expectations for you to be able to offend them. You follow me? If David is crushed by something I said, he must care an awful lot about what I said. Church, The Bait of Satan. A man named John Bevere wrote a book called The Bait of Satan. It's to get the church offended. Because when you build a wall between you and your neighbor, you have built a ceiling between you and God. Mm. Not sometime, 100% of the time. Not maybe. In fact, if you describe your relationship with God as awesome, flowery, the best that it could possibly be, and that is not your relationship with your fellow man, First John says you're a liar. I don't say it. First John says it. It is not possible to have a peer group around you that is scared to speak, that trembles at your very existence and spends their life tiptoeing around you and you have a good relationship with God. It is not possible. Okay? The Word makes that clear. So this man comes up and he says, good teacher. You know, it's in the habit of the rabbis. It's in their habit not to allow people to exalt them. They, some did good with that. Some didn't do good. Gamaliel, who was a rabbi of Paul, who taught Paul, one of his more famous quotes in history is my exaltation is my humiliation. And my humiliation is my exaltation. They knew that it was the beginning of severe sin and evil to allow people to look at them more highly than they should. Jesus falls into this tradition. This man comes up and says, good teacher, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? Jesus didn't say, I am not good. He said, why do you call me good? What is your motivation? Is it flattery? And Second John, he said he didn't accept man's testimony about man. Whose testimony would he accept? God's testimony about man. So he wants to know from this person, why are you calling me good? Did you receive a revelation from my father of who I am? Or is this simply a way of speech for you? What is it about me that you're calling good? And in fact, there was lots about Jesus that was good. I think it both challenges the man's assertion and also, at the very same time, makes him think deeply about who Jesus is. You ever walked up to somebody and said, man, that was awesome. I mean, what an awesome song. And they didn't know how to respond, you know? I mean, there's a false humility thing that floats around the church. Oh, no, it really wasn't that good. I mean, I, I, who am I, right? <laughs> I don't think that was the tone or the intonation in what Jesus spoke. I bet it was piercing. I bet the man all of a sudden realized that he had said something carelessly and without thought. And now he had to examine it. Watch what happens next. Jesus answered, no one is good except God. 
Now he's forced into a position of wondering, is what I said about Jesus true? Because there is nobody that is good except God. This pushes him to a conclusion of either Jesus is or is not good, and therefore is or is not God. I want you to understand that a litmus test for Jesus is his character good? Well, the only good character in the world comes from God. It made you wonder, is he God? But how do we apply this test to each other? What do I expect of you? I'm better than I could absolutely do, of course, right? This is what is meant by the same measure that you use to judge others that will be judged to you. Is it a mistake that Solomon's very first act as king is to settle a dispute between two wayward women over a baby? And what did he say? Cut it in half. The real mother came forward and said, no, 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 no. Later in life, because he's not done well, the Lord took his baby, the kingdom, and said, I'm going to split it in half. See, the same measure that we use, it will be measured to us. That ought to make you want to be merciful, huh? Give people the benefit of the doubt. Be really, really loving. Because you have to. Now you get to, and the extent that you do that to other people, God will visit that to you. Does that make you scared about some of the harsh things you've said in anger? Come on now. What a, am I preaching to myself here? Does it make you scared about some harsh things you've said in anger? Yes. Me too. Horrified. Let me tell you, that's what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not every word that proceeds out of your mouth is God's word. We need to be able to learn to put a governor on it. To speak the words as if we were speaking the word of God. Because people love us and our words matter. No one is good except God alone. Another way to translate that Greek phrase is the one God. Has a hint of a Jewish prayer in it. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. When someone asked about what to do to inherit eternal life, Jesus did not speak to him about what to believe. In fact, the first four commandments, none of which are, come up, are quoted here to... Uh, not misuse the name of the Lord your God, not have idols to honor the Sabbath, to have no gods besides our God. I know I quoted them out of order and backwards. Those are not quoted here. All of those have to do with how man should deal with God and how God should deal with man. That's not quoted. What should I do to inherit eternal life? And the first four don't even make the list coming out of Jesus' mouth. Why would that be? Wouldn't you think if you wanted to talk to somebody about eternal things, if Elizabeth said, hey, Eric, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Isn't the place to start with my relationship with her to speak about between her and God? Shouldn't I tell her the right way to think about God, the right way to interact with God, the right way to pray to God? Isn't that where we should start? Isn't that where we start? Let me ask you something. Can you murder God? Can you steal from him? Can you commit adultery? Can you lie about him? Can you defraud him? Can you not show him honor? Absolutely. And if you will do it to a man that you can see, you'll do it to God that you can't see. The reason that this starts with a man's relationship with man, how do I inherit eternal life? He tells him how to treat his brother is because the way you treat your brother is a reflection of what is really in your heart about God. Said, no, Eric, I love God. I love Him. Those people, not so much. I felt that way many times. But I found out they were made in the image of God. I found out that even if I didn't like their personality, they were fearfully and wonderfully made by God. When this guy wants to know how to inherit eternal life, he is told how to treat his fellow man. Now, it's pretty easy. Don't kill Casey. Don't steal from Casey. We'll leave the adultery one out. Don't lie about Casey. Don't defraud Casey. Murder's the sixth commandment. Adultery's the seventh. Steals the eighth. False testimony is the ninth. And defraud really has to do with coveting. I want something he has, so I'm going to try to take something that he has. That's the tenth. And he closes with the fifth. 
All of these things, you say, well, we're not saved by keeping a list of rules. Let's see how Romans says it. Turn with me to Romans. Forgive me, I've got to look around for these. Like I said, we're working without a net today. It'd be Romans 13. There. There. 8. 13, 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law, the mitzvahs, the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Even Paul, when writing, who was zealous for the law, thoroughly trained in it, writes that the aim, the fulfillment of the law was to get us to love. So when Jesus answers this person, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he begins to give him the mitzvahs, the commands that relate how to love your brother. They're all stated in negative fashions. Don't do this. But what's implied is don't steal from your brother. That's not love. Don't give false testimony about your brother. That's not love. This is not the aim that God has for you. Now, I want to tell you, we have all spent more hours than we should angry with our brothers. More hours than we should gossiping about our brothers. More hours than we should assigning malicious motives to our brothers and claiming to be in right standing with God. And I want you to know it cannot happen. It does not happen. When this man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus begins to speak with him about how to treat his brother. Now I want you to get this. What is uh, the greatest of the commandments have we been told? Three of the Gospels recorded. Anybody? You can say it loud. It'll be okay. I'll put you on the spot. I trust you all. What was that? Love your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And your neighbor and your neighbors yourself. Well, why is it put in that order? Why is it put in that order? It is loving God. Turn with me to Mark 12. I hope that's where it's at. Hey, it is. Every once in a while I get one right. Mark 12, starting in 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, all 613, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's interesting, isn't it? The Shema is a morning and evening prayer. It's uh, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. This is a declaration that all Jewish people, including Jesus, including all of the apostles, made every morning and every evening, which is the greatest commandment. It's funny that nobody began with hear, Oh, Israel. Nobody in here began with that. You've not heard it quoted that way. The other Gospels don't quote it that way because they don't need to, since it said every morning and every evening. They didn't think they needed to tell the audience that, but Mark does. Why is that the place to start? Because if he is going to be your one owner, your one controller, your one master, if there is no other, then you must do what he and he alone says. The most important place to start is with a completely undivided view of his lordship in your life. In other words, if he says it is not okay to leave something unreconciled, you say, yes, sir, and you go reconcile it. doesn't matter whether you want to, whether you think it's wise, whether you think it's beneficial. You do what he tells you to do. Next, what does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. When we begin to acknowledge His Lordship above every other thing in our life, every offense, every problem, every other thing, when our day begins and ends with the affirmation of His Lordship, something else begins to happen. We train our heart, mind, soul to set our affection, our love upon Him. The second is this. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher. He replied, you are right in saying that God is one and that there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself are more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I want you to understand this. If he really is Lord, which is what the Shema teaches, then you begin to love, set your affection on him, and the next thing that happens is you love your neighbors yourself. Well, if this is like a three-step process, and I hate to reduce it to that, but it's there, I can't help it. And you find yourself unable to love your neighbor, what should you do? When you are opening the directions to an incredibly complicated desk, like the one I have to put together next door, and you get to step four, and you don't see the screws that are supposed to be there for step four, what do you do? You go back and read steps one, two, and three and see what you forgot. You go back, look at the material list, and see what's wrong. If you're having problems with your fellow man, go back to step one. Is he Lord in every area of my life? And go back to step two. Is all of my heart, all of my mind, all of my affection upon him? Now, saints, I tell you, I've been preaching long enough, literally hundreds and hundreds of messages. I can preach if I want to. I mean, I, I can take a message and entertain you well. It's even in my nature to do it. I like it. I mean, there's something in me that craves that. But when the king of the universe speaks to me in a worship service, he says, if you want to go a step higher, you have to really love each other. I thought, okay, we will go over your lordship. We will go over our complete devotion to you, and we will teach that it must be expressed to one another or it's not real. Turn with me to 1 John. We're going to be in 1 John 4. I promise we're going back to Mark. But how can you talk about love for your fellow man and God and not read 1 John? 1 John got me saved. Two scriptures got me saved. And said, Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I knew that I was not doing his will. Despite all of my belief, I knew I was not doing it. The next one is, he said, if you say you have fellowship with the Father and walk in darkness, you lie and do not practice the truth. Well, I got mad enough that I wanted to punch him right in the face, and I tried. Because it was true. And so I was placed in the searing conviction of, I do not love God because my walk does not show it. I want you to understand in Mark 12, the teacher of the law that Jesus was talking with, tell me, which of these is most important? He told, Jesus told him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Why was he not far from it, but not placed in the center of it? Anybody? Because understanding that was not enough. Your understanding will only bring you so far. If there is no practical application then what good is it? If I understand quantum physics, but all I do is dig ditches, what use is that? Maybe I get the angle of entry of the shovel blade right or something. <laughs> what good is it? We are Christians sometimes that walk around understanding all the things of God, but really, tell me, is it more important to understand them or do them? When Jesus washed his disciples' feet in John 12, you can go read it if you want, it says that he did this in order to show them the telos of his love. That Greek word telos means full extent of. It is like the thing that you're aiming for. In fact, Romans 10 misquotes this. It says that Jesus is the telos of the law and it is written as end of the law, like termination point. No, it's a complete misunderstanding. It's the same word. Jesus is the full extent of all that the law was trying to express. Everything that it is, it's not the termination point. He is the personification of it. And in John 12, when it says to show them the full extent of his love, you know what he did? The king of the universe took off all of his outer clothes and used them to wash these people's feet. I really don't want to show hands, but I want to ask you, Whose feet have you washed this month? 
See, these are things that are godly. I say, well, come on, do I really have to scrub with uh, water on, on David's toes? Have you seen those things? <laughs> no, I think foot washing is symbolic of something else. But I tell you, as somebody who has done a lot of it, there is something incredibly powerful about it. The Eastern Bloc countries will not take communion until the whole church has taken off their shoes and washed each other's feet. You know, it's pretty hard for Lindsay and I to be really mad at each other and get on our faces before God and scrub the dirt off of each other's feet and then take a communion meal. Mm. Maybe we're missing out on something there. Saints, be reconciled. Be reconciled. Look at 1 John. We're going to be in the fourth chapter. Dear friends, let us love one another. This is verse 7. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. I want you to understand this is not the hippie Jesus. God is love. And that means do anything you want to do. Biblical love is not that. Read the Proverbs. If you love your son, you will beat him sometimes. Don't say beat. Don't say beat, please. We... We don't abuse our children. If I really have to explain that to you, you're more twisted than you should be. You know, it's kind of like when we talk about honoring, reverence, submission, and people say, yeah, but we don't be degrading. How twisted are you that you would jump to that conclusion? See, we live in a perverse society. It is so twisted that when even teaching the right things about God, we feel the need to clarify our words. Jesus never did that. You show me an example where he said, well, what I meant by that was. It never happened. He made the hearers wrestle with what truth was. And most of the time it required flesh to be cut off their ears and off of their hearts to understand it. The Proverbs teach that love is discipline. Hebrews teaches that love is discipline. So when we say God is love, don't think God is a warm, fuzzy emotion. Love is an action verb that has to do with how we act towards one another. This is how God showed his love among us. He made us all feel good about ourselves. That's not what yours says, is it? No. No, good. Because I thought you all had heretical Bibles. You got them from the Jehovah's Witness or something. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What is the example of how to love your brother? It's not waiting for them to repent first. It's not waiting until they show love to you for you to love them. It is beating them to the punch. You want to excel in competition? Compete to forgive first, to love first, to be reconciled first. You know how many times I've done marriage counseling? And what it boils down to is both are so pitifully prideful that neither one wants to be the first to apologize even though they both agree it needs to happen. And what do they say? Because I'm always the one that does. And it's funny, they both feel that way. You want to compete in something? Be the first to be godly. Be humiliated that God might be glorified. Say, but if I do that, then, 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 yeah, you might have to trust God for the outcome. Anytime I've had serious conflict in my life and it was resolved well, it's because somebody humbled themselves. That's the only way to do this, saints. Dear friends, since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he lives in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. I think one of the things that happens is sometimes we rely too much on the love that somebody has for us. 
How many people were really hurt and damaged when some national ministry, whichever one it was, took a nosedive? When they found out the guy was not doing well in Jesus? How many people were hurt by that? Man, untold thousands, right? If not millions. I come from a city in Louisiana that most places I've gone in the world. Somebody's asked me about one of our ministries there. Well, what about so-and-so? Well, let me ask you. If you are really relying on God's love and your whole goal is to display it, how destroyed should you be if somebody is not loving towards you? See, there is no better expression of God's love than to have somebody not reciprocate and you love them anyway, isn't it? Yes. Isn't that exactly the example that was just laid down? And if you know what to expect from mankind, because you've read the Word and there's an evil inclination in everybody, you ought to be surprised pleasantly when we do react well. Does this mean that you're pessimistic and skeptical? No, it means that you love without limit. Mm. You love without fear of loss. Love has nothing to do with fear. God is love. Whoever loves, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in Him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like Him. There is no fear in love. What does that mean? There is no fear in love. If I love Him, what happens if it's not returned? Let me ask you something. Did you make the first move with God or did He make the first move for you? So don't tell me that you always are the one to reach out to the other person. Somebody reached out to you first, didn't they? Or did you get saved and then go save God so he could save the rest of us? It's funny how when you step on certain buttons, people can get so cold, huh? Think that I'm preaching to their situation. Rest assured, I'm preaching to my own and every one of yours. And as much as I can possibly step on your toes to produce change, I will. And my own. And I hold myself to the same standard that we're trying to hold you to, which is the Word of God. Because I hope, I hope to become more like Him. And you with me and me with you. Don't leave now. It's about to get good. (laughs) There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. We're not suggesting that you do anything because you're worried about being punished. We're suggesting that you do it because it is right. Look, here's the difference in heart, right? When you are 20 years old and you got a driver's license and you got your first car with a V8, what do you do? Oh, yeah, man. Some of us 30 years old did it too and 33 and every year thereafter. But what do you do? The speed limit is nothing but a restriction that is in your way. It's a noose around your neck binding you up. It has to do with penalty and punishment and taking you before the judge. And man, I want to live in Germany. (laughs) What happens when you have a child, your very first one, and you're driving home from the hospital with the baby in the car? Why are they driving so fast? Who are they? They better not get that close to my car. Law has to do with preservation of life and love, not fear and penalty. The fear and penalty is there for the lawbreaker. Its aim, its goal is love and life. You see the two different ways to approach the same thing. Don't go be reconciled with your brother. Casey, we must be reconciled because God's not going to hear my prayer if we don't. Come on, man, you first or me first. Well, I tried. He didn't. I, I went to him just like the word said, and I said, I repent. And he didn't receive it. I'm just telling you so you'll know how to pray. I'm telling you so you'll know how to pray, and everybody will be clear that I'm the godly one, and he's the goat. Come on now. You've been in that situation at least a little bit, huh? Oh, yeah. Of course we have. It's the reason we pick up the phone instead of going to the throne. When you go to the throne, he tells you what you must do. When you go to the phone, they empathize with you. Do you want empathy or do you want the direction and how you should live? Too much to answer for both. (laughs) He's not unable to sympathize with our weakness. He was tested in every way. He understands what he's asking of you. We love because he first loved us. 
If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Doesn't that make you want to say, but who is my brother? Of course it does. Because you would like there to be some limit placed on that, wouldn't you? I mean, I would. I would just love if he would identify four or five people that I had to love, preferably the kind I like. And that was the litmus test. But he doesn't. And this is why the holy apostles had stones thrown at them that were tearing the flesh from their body, and they said things like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because the love of God filled them in such a way that it was really supernatural. They did what you would not expect. Mm. Do you understand? Do you think that that was the expectation of the crowd that was killing Stephen? That he would forgive them while they were tearing his flesh from his bones? Mm. See, we all know there's an evil inclination in man. But when you are filled with love, you can exceed that expectation. You can actually do things that others didn't know you were capable of. Now, maybe it's because your lives are so righteous that everybody has elevated this level of expectation that we are incredibly disappointed if you should happen to do something that's wrong. I'm just asking that we would be bathed in mercy. That we could focus on the things that each other get right rather than the things that we don't. That's good. I'm not trying to hide from conviction or be less approachable. But how do you feel? How do you feel in a day if there's ten people that you speak with and nine of them are concentrating on one thing that happened in your life that was not positive? How do you feel with that? Have you done it to anyone else? Have you judged the sum total of their life by a single incident? How about Doubting Thomas? Right? Why is he called Doubting Thomas? It's not a trick question. Because he doubted. Is that all Thomas ever did? First person in all of the scripture to say, My Lord and my God. So is it right that we define him as Doubting Thomas? We don't call Peter backsliding Peter. <laughs> one-fifth of the world's population sees him with godlike status. So why is one man defined by his weakness and another by glory? Because we're imperfect judges. Our king is more willing to look at what we can do, the potential inside of us, than he is to look at the things that we have not done right, and we need to be more like our king. Earlier I said some of you were selfish. You know what else some of you are? Brilliant, powerful, amazing. The difference is, is that we get to choose every day which one of those natures we will yield to. The most incredibly talented, awesome, gifted people I know are also the most dangerous people that I know. <laughs> I was in an interview one time, and a guy says, what is your biggest weakness? And I'm a salesman, so I was prepared for this kind of answer, you know? And I said, my biggest weakness is that I'm often too aggressive. This uh, can lead me to push too hard, can lead me to close too many times. And we took it a sales direction that I knew he needed to hear. He said, what is uh, your biggest strength? I said, I'm very aggressive. <laughs> Saints, this is how it is in the kingdom. You have been given certain attributes by God. Those attributes become to you life or they become to you death. You're strong-willed, praise God, be strong-willed about the right things. You're unyielding, praise God, be unyielding and holy things. But don't apply your natural attributes to everything and expect God to bless it. What you will find is that you alienate yourself from everybody around you and pretty soon it's just you and God. And you don't realize it, but you're not hearing from Him anymore either. You've accepted something that you should not have. Let's go back to Mark 10 because I do need to preach this message. I know that it might be easier if we simply followed a lectionary or a card catalog of servants. And I often make fun of that. There is benefit in knowing what your pastor is going to preach on before he gets there. It allows you to study it. There's benefit in printing notes in the bulletin so you don't have to take them. It allows you to listen. 
the most effective messages in my life were the ones that were simply born of the Spirit. They were not put together all of that well, and yet somehow or another it touched every area that I needed to hear. I walked into my very first charismatic meeting with a list of seven questions. The man was so ADD that I could not follow his point, and it was brilliant because he managed to weave through all seven of my questions that were completely unrelated, and it was God. So I probably would not give him an award for the structure of his message. But are we looking to be impressed by wise and persuasive words, or are we looking for fruit on a tree? I'm persuaded that pastors should lead by the content of their character and not the words that proceed from their mouth. Because one can be faked and the other cannot. I am telling you this morning what is flowing out of my heart. Be reconciled to one another. If you think that there might be a problem, go make peace. Saints, if someone comes to you today to make peace, don't say, oh, oh no, there was never a problem. I'm such a good Christian, I've never been offended. You know, why did you offend someone? <laughs> make peace. Thank them for coming to you. Acknowledge that you do have the potential to get upset. And that you appreciate that they took that step. Wouldn't that be a good thing? Would you like to wake up in the morning and know there was not a person on the planet that was angry with you? It's not always possible, but wherever it's possible, we need to try. How about in your own church? Wouldn't that be a blessing? But in your own family. But you don't know what they did. No, I know what God did, and that's enough. I know what God did, and that's enough. None of you have been stoned to death. Some of you have been stoned, but not to death. You're all here. <laughs> <laughs> forgive forgive alright verse 20 of Mark 10 teacher he declared all these I have kept since I was a boy what was the aim of those six commandments love so when I say all of these I have kept since a boy are we missing the point not murdering, not committing adultery, not stealing, not defrauding, and honoring your mother and father were not the point. The point was be loving. All these I have kept. Another way to say that is, I haven't broken any of those. Well, one has to do with restraint. The other has to do with compulsion towards what is right. Mm. Jesus is not going to ask him to not do something. He's going to ask him to do something. Mm. See, we want our faith to be displayed in our passiveness. I did not watch an R-rated movie. I did not drink that drink. I did not eat table salt, whatever it is. I did not, I did not, I did not. I want you to notice how Jesus answered him. One thing, oh, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He was not interested in what the man had not done. He wanted to see him do something. You know, it is amazing to me. All of the commentaries on this kind of verse focus on this command is not for all believers. It's like they're very nervous that all believers are going to think that they have to go sell everything and give it to the poor. My footnotes right here in this Bible are, are that big on a passage this big. Making sure that you understand this is not required of everybody. This was this man's own personal vice. Matthew 10 teaches us that if you love your mother and father more than you love Jesus, you're not worthy of him. Mm. So let me ask you something. What's easier, to give up the love of your mother and father or a dollar? Mm. <laughs> While this command may not be for every Christian, it was spoken to this person, more is required of you. You must divorce yourself from everything except a love for God. And then whatever you have, be born of love for God. I think it's interesting that we have to write a paragraph that says, relax, you don't all have to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. It should be one sentence that says, this may be required of you and much more. <laughs> but instead, what they have written is, this, this was for this one because it was his personal vice. Oh, well, I'm good. Nobody else has a love for money. I, and so long as we're clear that we all are free from that particular vice. We tithe, praise God. 
We give to missions, praise God. You want to find yourself close to the Father? Find something that is treasurable to you. Something that you really love. Go give it to somebody that doesn't even know it's worth something. You find out where idols are in your life, I promise. Mine was a SOG pocket knife. It cost $85, I made about $4 an hour, and I saved and saved and saved. I looked at that knife and cried. Looked up at the man I needed to give it to, looked at it and cried. And that was just one of many to come. Because our Lord will have no gods besides him. And the way that's best expressed is in your love to your fellow man. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. If he had great wealth, wouldn't it be easier to give it away? I mean, all of his life he'd been benefited by it. But that's not the way that worldly attachments work. The longer they're there, the harder they are to get rid of. And if you think that's true about money, how do you think it will be about bitterness or unforgiveness? The longer it's there, the harder it is to get rid of. The word of God is supposed to be like a double-edged sword, like a scalpel, something so sharp that it will divide these things out of our lives. But the longer it's there, your heart becomes calloused. It becomes hardened. You get used to hearing sermons about the same things, and you've already come to a conclusion in your mind that you're completely justified in that area. He's talking about someone else. Or he's talking about me, but it's because he doesn't understand, or he's bad, or he hates me. It's kind of like trying to perform surgery with a razor blade on a cue ball. But is your heart supposed to be like a cue ball, or is it supposed to be like butter? See, we are supposed to have a soft, pliable heart. When you hear these kind of messages, you're supposed to be examining what in my life might God want to do that with? Instead of drawing boundaries and lines and saying this doesn't apply here, that doesn't apply there, this is for them, or he's only mentioning that because he knows about this in my life and he's wrong. Okay. Well, we'll check back with you in a year and see if you've grown any. Because I will have in a year, I promise you. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his word. Why would they be amazed? Apparently, there's a little bit of a prosperity gospel then too. Since God said that they would be blessed for their obedience in the land, it's kind of assumed that those that had a lot were blessed. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. Why would that be? Because there's a great deal of treasure and strength in their own arm here that they're invested in. Well, I'm not rich, Eric. I don't have to worry about it. No, but are you rich in your verbal abilities? Are you rich in your competence, your strength of character, your forcefulness, your aggression? All of us are rich in some area. And our God will require us to lay it down for the benefit of another person. So you can out-argue everybody. Great. You'll end up a lawyer alone. Good for you. How's it working with your marriage, by the way? That you can out-argue your spouse. You can bully them into a corner. That make you right? It has never made me right. It's made me very convicted, made me very guilty, but it's never made me right. And if you were right, right at what price? There's a stoplight down here with a train. And the train may not obey that stoplight. And you would be right. Dead right. Is that where you want to be? At what cost, saints? But if you die to your own desires, you lift your brother's need higher than yours, what is the worst that could happen? Well, it could be humiliated. Good. The Bible says it's your exaltation. The Bible says the glory of God rests upon your shoulders. You are like Christ. So, but they should be washing my feet, not me theirs. I can see the love of God dwells in you. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is... When's the last time you heard that message preached? How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. All we hear is how easy it is. That's all you ever hear is how easy it is. In fact, preachers stand hour after hour, day after day, and say, Jesus can do so much for you, Jan. He can do so much for you, Gary. You'll be rich, happy, well-fed. You have the best tennis rackets, the best clothes. The drug dealers will want your car. And you have a grill and bling and whatever else. Because <laughs> Jan's always wanted a grill. <laughs> Where is the gospel message that doesn't say how much Jesus can do for you? 
but how much you're supposed to do for Jesus. Because he pretty clearly tells these young boys here in the next few verses that their lives are going to be required. And they gave them. How did you accept Jesus and why? Are you running at a race, but you didn't start at the starting line? The starting line is he owns everything. It is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He's the only God for me. In every area of my life, he's God. That is the starting line. We're trying to run, trying to be godly, but the truth is in this area, I know that the word says that I submit to my husband. I know that the word says that. But he's not good at it, so I'm not going to do it. I know that the word says discipline my child, but it will make too big a scene. I'm just not going to do it. I know that the word says put my wife's needs before my own. But I don't like her that much. I'm not going to do it. Is he Lord in every area or not? If he is, we will find life and love and liberty and disco, according to the newsboys. You ready for verse 26? <laughs> now we are to read 24. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But I know you have all heard it. Those of you who have been in church a long time know that the eye of a needle probably refers to a particularly uh, shaped gate. I've been in churches where this happened and it was called the eye of a needle. A camel could not walk through upright. A horse could not walk through upright. It was forced to get on knees and crawl and men were forced to bow to walk through it. All of that is true, but does it really matter? It's a Hebrew idiom that is just trying to teach you. You could not be saved on your own. You must have God's intervention. That is the whole point. Listen to what he says. Then the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Can you imagine the apostles that walk with Jesus? Their question is, Who can be saved then? Have you ever heard anybody concerned about that? Who can be saved? No, we actually assume everybody's saved. Right? I saw John 3.16 in a baseball game, so I'm saved. Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. I want to tell you, saints, that whatever the impossible, irreconcilable difference between you and someone else is, it is possible with God and it is required. It's required. Psalm 133 says, How blessed it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is like oil that is dripped off Aaron's beards to his sons, or like dew off of Mount Hermon. Dew off of Mount Hermon was life giving water to all of Israel because it is the source of water for them. Yeah. Unity is where this begins. This is why the devil works so hard for faction. This is why he works so hard for offense. You know, I don't want to teach it because I really like to sing a few songs before our uh, potluck, but I do want to tell you this. These next couple paragraphs are so important. These people had left everything, and they had left everything for the age to come. This is what the Hebrews call Olam Haba. It does not mean another place. It means a renewed world, and they called it eternal life, a, a world that had been changed, a world that was based on a different order. Jesus was speaking to them about the path and the way to the new world was love and they didn't understand it. And the way that you know they didn't understand it is in this next paragraph, 32 through 34. He begins to tell them he is going to lay down his life for them. That is the full extent of his love. He's telling them that so that they will learn the extent of which they are supposed to show love for everyone else. And what do they do? They ask him for power and high position. He's talking to them about sacrifice and love, and what are they talking to him about? Verses 35 through 42. Power and position. See, this is really what's wrong in the heart of men. We want to be someone great, and the way the Bible defines it is to become someone small, less important in our own eyes. So all of the time we're figuring out how to become great while giving the appearance that we're humble and sweet and forgiving and all of those things. 
I'm convinced that on that day, there are some nameless, faceless servants, some in this country, some outside this country, who simply loved people, fed them, cared for them, cared more about their welfare than the person who was doing the service, that are going to so outshine the great televangelist of the world. And I'm sure the televangelists are great people too. But you have an opportunity every day to do something for God simply by letting your life be a message of reconciliation. Is there no one in your life that you need to reconcile with? Nobody that you've written off? Nobody that you've decided that was one sin too many, now they're gone? Luke 17 actually says seven times in one day. Seven in one day. The way Matthew says it is 70 times seven, like infinity. Seven times in a single day. I want to encourage you to be rich in the love and mercy of God. To not seek power and position, but to seek the welfare of your brother. I want to encourage you to do that. The extent to which you do it will determine how close you are or not with God. You can write books. You can preach. You can have wonderful testimonies. But your spiritual walk will be determined by the extent to which you love your neighbor. I want to pray. Want to sing? I've got time for a couple songs since you don't have to drive to eat. You might could go hug some people. When I say something like this, are you giving an altar call? Does the thought rise in you? I don't want to respond to that. They'll think I'm the one that had a problem. If it was only one of you that had a problem, we wouldn't preach. I'd just come see you. All of us have this problem. None of us want to be seen as small. None of us want to be seen as hurt or offended. None of us want to do the offended. And since we all have that goal, none of us want to do that, let's not do it. Let's love each other. Amen? Amen. All right, now we're not going to sing Kumbaya. But we are going to worship. We are going to sing, then we'll eat, and we'll have fun with each other in the presence of God. Amen? Amen.